This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With careful gaze, the Gregory, we consider the night side of the path of suns. And then with a distant light pierces the mist, we introduce some tools for improvisational campaign planning based on the concept of fronts from Dungeon World. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. We're talking about every single night side of the suns this time. Uh, so we've, you know, talked about it here and there, hinted at it. Uh, and basically, we've been trying to figure out what to do with the night side of the suns because there's not a whole lot of information about them. Um I went through the the Kickstarter articles to see, you know, just how much info we had on each of the suns and what basically what it amounted to was a paragraph or two about every single uh, night side uh, for each sun. And I decided we should just dive in and talk about every single one of them and wrap this whole thing up and finish the entire path of suns tonight. How's that sound, Scott? That sounds great. Cool. Great. Um, I mean, after we talk about this, did, did we talk about the dark? I don't remember. <laughs> it has, it's been mentioned before, and that's about it. Okay. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember if we had really gotten into it or not. We were talking about the dark a little bit here and there, but it's another topic that I don't think we've dug into. Um, there, we're gonna, I'm going to touch on it just a little bit here again, because it seems like the dark and the night side are pretty close neighbors. Um, not in the sense that they're similar, more that their proximity is fairly close. Um, and it, you'll, you'll hear about it and we'll get into it. So why don't we just start with the night side? Um, so we started getting information about the night side of the suns pretty early on. And we eventually learned that the night side is another path through the path of suns that loops back upon itself. So once you go through all of the suns uh, and then hit the invisible sun, you end up coming back along the path, starting with the gold sun and ending at the silver sun. Uh, but you go through this night side path, which um, it's mentioned in the order of Goetics uh, in that update that uh, some of the Goetics who favor working with demons refer to themselves as walkers of the night side. Um, and there are some other um, bits dropped here and there that suggest that the night side isn't evil. <clears throat> it's not evil in the classic sense of, you know, things are good and things are bad. It's, it's a different way to make your way through the path of suns. And it has, it reflects different aspects of those suns as you're traveling along them. Um, and what I was looking at is my understanding is that the night side of each sun tends to be a subversion of the qualities that it represents that the, 
uh, non-nightside version of the sun represents. And instead of just being an opposite of what that sun is, uh, think of it as taking what the sun is representing and then pushing it to an extreme. So you know how everything in moderation, you know, hey, drinking is fine as long as you do it in moderation. If you take it to the extreme, well, bad things tend to happen. Um, and that's what it seems to do on the night side as well. Uh, take take those aspects of the sun and just run them straight down into a, a not quite a negative version, but a, a more extreme example of uh, what each sun is doing. Uh, so we're going to start with the gold sun. So the the gold sun represents new beginnings, redemption, mercy, and forgiveness. So the night side here, um, it represents new beginnings and new rules. And this one was a bit harder to, to scratch out here. Um, but it also makes hints at a new order. And it also suggests that the warden, uh, Corazon, who is favored by the Goetics, may also be keeping the dark at bay. Uh, but Corazon may also be working to let the dark in into the Path of Suns. So who knows exactly what's going on there. So the Gold Sun, the aspects here, I'm not sure if I would quantify them as uh, a subversion or an exaggeration of the other qualities that it has. Um, because new beginnings is represented in both sides of it, but then we all have, we have new rules and new orders. Uh, so, what do you what do you think about this one, Scott? Am I on here with how these aspects are working? I think about it much the same way you do, based on my readings. Uh, I've been bringing the night side into my playtest a bit, so I've tried. I've read everything I could uh, in, in from the. Uh, the, the Kickstarter as well as even the uh, the playtest documents. And they're just the best I can come up with is, is close to what you said that the dark sides represent an excess of whatever the, the, the day side represents though. It's difficult to understand what an excess of new beginnings is. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, and what I, th uh, the best I can come up with and what I might run with would be that the, the, the day side of the gold sun emphasize the optimism inherent in new beginnings, but maybe the dark side represents the anxiety and fear associated with new beginnings and the possibility that the new order or a new beginning is a step back on, on some scale or in relation to some value that we hold. Uh, it could be something like that. But if the warden here is working to open the path of suns to the dark, then perhaps it's an extremely new beginning. You know how the, you know, one of the fantasy tropes is a villain who says, I'm going to end the world in order to create a new world order. Uh, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but to them, they're saying we're going to purge all humans in order to, you know, give this land back to those who really should have it. Maybe it's something like that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And that's kind of what I'm thinking about a, a, uh, a an excess of new beginnings in this case, not being repeated new beginnings, but instead a new beginning that is so extreme that it undoes even the things we take for granted and take as permanent. Mm -hmm. So next up on our list, we go to the red sun uh, and the red sun 
It represents destruction, annihilation, change, strange, alien, and otherness. Uh, so the night side here, we've talked about it a little bit before. It represents chaos, destruction, and constant upheaval. So this one is a, a clear extension of the qualities that it has, but taken to a taken to an extreme. Um, constant upheaval and destruction. Um, it's not just change, which can be good. It's just destruction for the sake of destruction. And here we have the uh, the warden is mm, Balragon, who is a demon warrior of strength, spikes, and hammers. And only insane Vizlay would seek to petition this warden for any sort of favors. And we've talked about this one before. And it, this one seems like a pretty straightforward example of what we had been talking about. That, yeah, let's take these qualities and turn it up to 11. I totally agree. No, that one's very simple, I think. Yeah. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Um, the next one, I think, is a really interesting one. Uh, so we're going to talk about the Pale Sun here. Uh, and the Pale Sun represents f- the, the future and death. And the night side of it represents um, what I took from it was fear, dread, despair, loss, and desperation. And all of this, I think, kind of ties into what the Pale Sun represents uh, with the future. Because uh, a lot of this is tied into anxiety, which anxiety tends to de- uh, anxiety tends to hook into things that are going to happen. You have anxiety about not something that is in the past, but something that you are looking towards and anticipating. Um, so when you take the future and turn it into something that's a little bit uh, more extreme, and you focus in on it then you run into these emotions where you have fear and dread and um, despair. And, you know, I think that's a pretty good example of, you know, taking this quality once again. So the, the night side of the pale sun borders on this land called the stillness. And it seems like that might be the final resting place for the dead. Uh, So spirits will go to, the pale and hang out there and, you know, have a good time in the big city of the pale. Uh, but then it seems like eventually they will make their way through to the night side of the pale sun and, uh, head out through the stillness and never be heard from again. And there were some rumors about a land like this existing in the pale sun update. So I think this might be what it was actually talking about. Um, we also have a queen for the warden of this night side. Uh, and her name is Fazramir, and she has a fortress that's on the other side of death, um, which is where the pale spirits would be going through. Uh, and she is the queen of suicide and despair, grieving and loss, and the desperation to avoid such things. So basically, she's the queen of anxiety. And she is constantly constantly at war with the warden of the pale sun uh and they're you know i don't want to say undead but their armies of spirits are constantly at war fighting with one another uh thoughts on the pale sun yeah it seems like this is a a variation on the extreme definition of the night side that it's hard to say what, what is extreme death. Uh, but it, it's really an unbalanced or extreme focus on mm-hmm. death, 
whereas you know death is inevitable. Uh, however, the constant fear and dread of death is an excess attention to it. Uh, and that's where the excess comes for this differentiating the night side from the day side. Uh, so I think that it still works to talk about the night side as being an extreme version rather than the opposite of the day side. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to think of uh, the, the label that we put on the day side of the sun. Uh, and I think that's a good way to go. Um, wasn't sure if that was something we had in any of the Kickstarter updates or if it had been talked about. Uh, but yeah, uh, from here on out, I'll be referring referring to it as the night side and the day side. Uh, so we're going to move on to the gray sun. So the gray sun is our world. It's the world of shadow. And it represents mortality and humans. It is also a false world. The night side of the gray sun represents hollowness, emptiness, and lack. It is completely false. Uh, it is an endless realm of plain gray. And it's strangely easier to get, well, I don't know if this is strangely easier, but there's a, there's a note that says it's easier to get to the night side of the gray sun from pale along the night side path than it is to get to from the day side of the gray sun. Um, so perhaps the other suns, it's easier to get to the night side um, from the day side, but in the case of gray, it is not easier to do so. And there are rumors that uh, people from the gray side, the, the day side of gray have found themselves in the night side and some of them have made it back. And there is no suggestion of a warden being in charge of the night side of the gray sun. So I'm not sure exactly what to think about the gray sun at this point. I mean, perhaps the gray sun is a fairly new construct that may have come about for, you know, the purposes of the Visley escaping from the war. Maybe it hasn't been around that long, or maybe it is, it has been part of the path of suns for a very, very long time. But I'm, I'm curious how the night side of the gray sun would function. And my inspiration at this point would be to just riff well, not riff, just, you know, wholesale steal from Stranger Things and grab the upside down <laughs> and say, this is basically what it's like. Yeah, I, I was reminded of the uh, world of wraiths from Wraith the Oblivion. Uh, how I tried to understand this as an excess of the gray sun was to think that if we compare the gray sun to the indigo sun, then our world is a pale reflection mm -hmm of the vibrant magic of the indigo sun. The night side of the gray is has a similar relationship to the day side of the gray as the gray does with the indigo. That is, it is a realm even farther removed from magic, from color, and from the sort of vibrancy we expect from the indigo sun. So it's just further down the continuum, farther away from the truth and reality that uh, represent the indigo sun. Um, visually, I think it, it, with with Wraith the Oblivion, uh, they you know, the, the those who have died move into a shadow realm uh, where you know colors are all muted. It kind of reflects a dispassionate, uh, rundown version of our world, and that's somewhat how I see the Gray Sun, though without the ghosts who might be more associated with the Pale. Mm -hmm. But the idea of a world that's like ours but is more gray, rundown. Uh, f empty of magic and vibrancy 
is how I think of, of the night side of the gray. So getting stuck here would be a pretty bleak situation to be in. Yeah, it'd be, I think it'd be hard to tell stories there, but if you could tell stories, it could be really interesting. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got uh, the dark, the night side of the indigo sun. So the indigo sun represents truth. It's reality. It's the actuality. Um, the dark side or the night side represents the dark side of truth and dark secrets. Our warden here is Gulanan, who is referred to as the under god, also referred to as the Lord of Secrets, though there are a lot of people in um, Saturn that refer to themselves as the Lord of Secrets. So it's a moniker that's fairly common. Uh, he exists uh, deep underground in the rumbling of, uh, you know, the underbelly of this nightside. Uh, so this is an interesting one. And this is where I think it kind of subverts the idea of the indigo sun where indigo sun is truth and reality. It's aspirational. You know, it's, it, it feels pretty clean and nice. And here it's still truth, but it's those deep, dark secrets. It's those skeletons in your closet that you don't want people to know about that. It's, it's a truth that's ugly and you know, your um, information brokers might be very interested in, you know, working through this night side of the Indigo Sun. Um, we didn't have a whole lot of information here. So uh, any, any other thoughts that you might have about the Indigo Sun? I can still square this with the notion of excess because this, I think of this as truth so much that it hurts. Mm -hmm. This is the unwanted truth, which is still truth. And maybe it's, it's an even more kind of extreme form of truth in the sense that it is truth you that is so solid, so true that you don't want to face it. And that is an aspect of truth we don't like to confront, uh, but it is still truth. So it, it's it's not quite as clear a case of ex, of excessiveness as some of the other suns, mm -hmm. uh, but is a uh, not the opposite of truth, but instead some version of truth. In this case, that's so extreme that it undermines what we usually value truth for. We think of truth as something that provides us happiness and comfort and and constancy. This is truth that is still, while true, it is challenging and uncomfortable and painful. So the truth that um, our older brother is the favorite son, stuff like that, might be on a painted on a giant wall in the in the caverns of the Indigo Sun. <laughs> uh, well, my brothers don't listen to this, so whatever. Uh, <laughs> the Blue Sun. Next up, uh, the Blue Sun is it represents just rewards, relaxation, and sleep. It's the land of dreams and the night side of the blue sun is uh, I didn't really have a, a good representation here, though. If you pull it from the warden, who is a Nimrigal, you would be looking at gluttony, laziness and slothfulness, which goes along with, um, you know, never ending sleep. Um, the other part about the sun that I thought was really interesting is that distances here are skewed. Uh, so short distances are longer than they should be. And your vision doesn't work right because these distances are, well, distance is messed up here. 
Uh, and that reminds me of all sorts of horrible dreams where you feel like you're running, but you're running through water and you're not quite getting where you want to go. So this seems like not so much a, a realm of nightmares, but a realm of unsettling dreams that they're not, they're not good, but they're not completely horrible though. This is also the realm of, uh, I think, uh, Nimragal is the warden of dreams and nightmares. So, you know, it's going to come in here. Uh, but like I said before, uh, we don't want to just go for the, you know, easy representation here and say, well, if blue is dreams, the night side should be all nightmares, right? Right. And I think there's another way to think about excessiveness here that, or that this suggests another way to interpret even the previous suns. An alternative to the excessiveness frame could be the self-destructive frame. This is this is dream and relaxation in a self-destructive sense. How does dream end up hurting you? Um, and that is through an excessive emphasis on uh, you know on relaxation, so sloth and laziness, uh, just like the self-destructive truth of indigo or the self-destructive destruction of, of the, the red sun. So a variation on excessiveness might be excess of some quality to the point of self-destruction. Yeah. And self-destruction, I think makes a whole lot of sense because the path of suns is also an internal path of the soul. So it is a path through the self. That's a great point. Well, uh, thanks. I'm just building off of what you said. Uh, <laughs> I had not connected it into the notion of the path of sons being an individual spiritual development, which has been part of the uh, discussion of the path of sons that it's the micro and the macro mm -hmm. at the same time. So uh, you, that, you, you built that connection uh, and I like oh, it. We're the best. <laughs> we're super good. Uh, next up, we've got the green sun, <laughs> which is life and growth. Um, and the, the night side here, uh, I would, I think I could best describe it as unchecked growth uh, parasitic relationships, cancer and infection, uh, not parasitic relationships, uh, parasites. Um, because the, the life here is basically life that is once again, self-destructive, uh, cancer and infection and parasites, they ultimately destroy the host that they are within. And so we have this unchecked growth that is going to destroy the self. Uh, our warden here is Demagon, who is a goat-like demonic creature who rules from a palace of poisonous nettles. Uh, so I know we're, we're going to be talking about the green sun a little bit. Um, have you given any thought to how you're going to use the, the night side of the green sun? I have. Uh, I may talk about it more, uh, though that's coming, I think, further into season two of my playtest. Uh, so I won't spoil that too early because I know I've got some players who do listen to this. Mm -hmm. um, it is not a spoiler to know that they're going to the Green Suns and they've already gone there. Uh, one source of inspiration I had for this was a storyline from the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book. Uh, I don't I guess five or six years ago or something mm -hmm. like that, uh, where they uh, found a connection to what they called the Cancerverse, which was not a alternate universe with sort of like everyone who had goatees and was evil. Uh, instead, this was an alternate universe where instead of Captain Marvel as the avatar of life having died uh, in the 80s, 
<laughs> uh, this was a realm where the avatar of life killed the avatar of death. And so life grew unchecked. And it was, in fact, kind of a dark reflection of our universe, not because of the dominance of death, but because of the dominance of unchecked mm -hmm. life. And it, it, it kind of subverted our normal, you know, uh, thoughts about what evil alternate universes are. Uh, and, and instead that, you know, life itself, when, when unchecked, can be the threat. Um, and that might be, is, is illustrated here through the night side of the green side. Yeah. Uh, unchecked life that will ultimately destroy the path. Uh, the last sun on the path here we have is the silver sun, which represents birth, beginning, and potential. The night side here represents finality, endings, and loss. And this one, I think, breaks from all of the others where we had, um, you know, an extreme version of the, the day side of the sun. This feels more like an, a, a complete opposite to what, you know, the day side has. Uh, because birth, beginning, potential, we're talking about, you know, ending everything. Um, the warden here is Ravenal. He's an insatiable beast of a thousand limbs. Uh, he's also a sibling of Nem, who is the warden of the dark. Um, and the thing about Ravenal is this creature wants to devour anything it comes across. And there's... People look at this and say, oh, that's terrible. It's awful. But um, there's another train of thought that says, no, it's not awful because Ravenal is preventing you from, you know, slipping off the path of suns and into utter dissolution. So this, this really feels like a complete opposite and breaks form from all the other suns we ran into. How, how are you feeling about that read on this? Uh, pretty much okay. the same. Uh, in, 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 I saw this coming because it, it's hard for me to distinguish the silver sun from the golden sun. Uh, and maybe that's because you know, it's, it is a path, but in some sense, it's a circle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they are very similar in many ways. Um, and that's going to wrap up the, uh, the night side of the Path of Suns. And that takes care of all the suns all in one, one show. Um, we'll be talking about the dark again <laughs> at some point because I really want to get into that and talk a little bit about yeah. it. Uh, but I think uh, we're going to move on and talk about a different RPG system. With a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss how we can find inspiration for our invisible sun games in other places. In this segment, we discuss how to draw from the concept of fronts in the Dungeon World RPG to facilitate preparation for an improvisational campaign. Over the last several episodes, we've had a number of segments that dealt with tools for, or for improvisation. Uh, these have ranged from sort of the micro improvisation of coming up with names and coming up with ideas for individual NPCs uh, to, in, in this case, something bigger. Um, this is a tool that I have found useful for uh, developing material for a largely improvisational campaign uh, that helped me figure out what the big story could be while still allowing for the freedom that is n implied in an improvisational campaign. Uh, this is a challenge because uh, it it, it's, it's a balance that one has to strike. Uh, there, it, it's almost a contradiction. 
to say that one has an improvisational campaign because a campaign implies a long-term story uh, that has a coherent kind of beginning, middle, and end, whereas improvisation suggests you don't know what's going to happen from one moment to the next. Eh, it's a big old pot of soup, and you throw a whole bunch of stuff into it and see how it turns out. Right, right. So a, a compromise is to provide yourself with an idea of where the story can go. In fact, multiple ideas on where the story can go and the tools you need to help make that story interesting in whatever direction the, the story begins to evolve. And I think fronts do a good job of that because they allow a, a GM to sort of plan out multiple trajectories for the campaign and what they might, the implications they might have for the story to use those to build up the tools you need to run individual sessions, but not be so committed to a particular campaign that you railroad the players to, uh, through a series of encounters that you know that sessions one, two, three, and four are going to go a certain way because they have to, to get the players to the big bad villain at the end of uh, session four, uh, where they uh, obviously uh, overcome this villain by hitting them on the head with their, their mace or whatever. Uh, and, uh, normalcy is restored, that instead you actually don't commit to an end point and you don't commit to a particular arc, but have some general ideas of where things can go and then take tips from the players to indicate where you want to emphasize uh, and reinforce the story so that everyone enjoys their time as, as much as possible. So have you actually put together fronts for your, well, any games? Um, I have a blog post on my old blog called uh, Strange Encounters, where I talked about some fronts I developed for a strange campaign, most of which I did not use. Uh, but I enjoyed the process of putting those fronts together. And, and I only I still use bits and pieces in the game that I do okay. play. Uh, I'm in the process of putting some fronts together for... Uh, my for season two of my Invisible Sun playtest. Though I want to emphasize that I'm going to use the term fronts fairly loosely. There are many versions of this idea, off, many of them called fronts mm -hmm. even. Uh, I'm going to talk about it, kind of a minimalist, simplified version of the fronts inspired by some of the language in Dungeon World. So I'm not going to talk about all the different aspects uh, from Dungeon World uh, where developing a front has a, a series of very specific mechanical components, but instead draw conveniently for my own planning just bits and pieces I found most useful. And I will talk about those here. If you think this is interesting, I advise, advise you to look further into either the Dungeon World RPC, RPG itself uh, or even some creative Googling. We'll find other secondhand accounts that try to distill the most interesting part of fronts for uh, other RPG systems. And uh, I have no problem recommending you borrow the parts you like and ignore the ones that you find inconvenient for your particular game. Always solid advice. <laughs> so to... Uh, for briefly in this segment, I just want to introduce some of the cons, some of the parts of fronts that I find useful to think about uh, and uh, how we might use these tools in Invisible Sun. In a future segment, we might uh, 
reserve time to actually work through each of these parts in greater detail with a running example of what I'm intending to do for season two uh, of my playtest. Um, but uh, I'm not doing that here. So if you're in my playtest, I don't think you need to, tur- uh, to turn off your podcast just yet. There won't be spoilers for the game. Uh, but in the future, I may warn you <laughs> <laughs> that uh, there will be uh, such spoilers. But this discussion is going to be some, mostly conceptual. So the parts of fronts I find most useful are uh, dangers, uh, impulses, grim portents, and impending doom. So I'm going to break each of those four elements down in greater detail. Some of them are they're, they're relatively simple concepts. Uh, a front is in some ways a, an entire campaign theme. It can be in a D&D campaign, you might just say something like, uh, uh, or it, it, you know, the, uh, the, the, fr- the, the horde of orcs coming from the West is a front, or the corruption of the royal court is a front. Within this general theme, though, you want to elaborate on several dangers that, the, that are contained within that front. So the horde of orcs may itself, of course, be part of the danger. The the horde itself is a danger, Uh, but it may present other dangers as well. It may lead to the militarization of other countries uh, in the area, and that may be a a danger itself. It may lead to ecological destruction. That itself is a danger, but you can think of multiple dangers associated with each of these fronts as a way to diversify the sorts of events you want to happen in a particular campaign. Uh, with the you know the horde of orcs example again, um, you wouldn't have a campaign focused on a horde of orcs where every session started with, or at least I hope you wouldn't, had every session started with you know okay here's five new orcs, and then five more orcs. And then you repeat that until characters get to level four, and then it's five version two orcs, greater orcs, or ur orcs, or whatever. And it's just a continual grind through different orcs. Instead, you want to look at multiple dimensions of the of dangers presented by this particular front. So you might have uh, orcish spies in the beginning uh, as that are representing the uh, the orc horde uh, but then you have display another displaced community that there uh, are being forced through your country that is creating a new danger uh, or forest fires or something related to the movement of this horde of orcs whatever it may be you diversify those dangers uh, to make the encounters and the threats that you uh, build into your campaign more diverse The second of these components is impulses. The impulse is the motivation for the dangers. If they have such an, like a forest fire doesn't really have an impulse except burn more. Uh, So we're especially dealing with uh, planning or conscious sorts of entities when they are uh, dangers. What is it that is driving these? Uh, Orcs don't invade because orcs will orc. Orcs invade because they want something. They want to eat human flesh. Uh, Maybe that's more territory. Maybe they're maybe they're you know they're they're very hungry, but, it, but specifying what that impulse is is very useful. 
And the fronts encourage you to think about what it is that drives each of these fronts to, or each of the dangers to expand and put continued pressure on the, the, the players. So the players can't just sit around and wait for things to come to them. They can't let things develop on their own time. That gives some immediacy to uh, the threats as well as an internal logic to those dangers. Um, for impulses, I think you could also assign impulses to um, something like a forest fire. Um, Dungeon World, I think, does the same sort of thing where it, you have a drive for a monster. And a lot of times it's just, you know, to rip and tear, things like that. Um, so an impulse for a forest fire could just be to burn down more forest. Oh, right. I think that even with natural hazards and things like that, you can talk about whatever it is that explains why they change is their impulse. Yeah, it and it might be a very simple so impulse, but it might also be a helpful reminder. Yes, it is a helpful reminder. And again, it, it, it focuses you on how does this danger change and likely grow without the intervention of the players? Because you want to create a sense of a living and changing world where the forest fire isn't waiting for your players to, to trip across it. And the orc army isn't sitting there garrisoned waiting for your the, the party to come storming in. They have their own goals. They have their own impulses. So they're moving forward until they are pushed mm -hmm. back. And this gives a sense of, of, of vitality to the dangers that helps with uh, story planning without necessarily dictating where the story goes. It doesn't necessarily say, oh, well, the orcs are going to take this village and then this village and then this village. It'll instead say that what is their general motivation? Because they're going to use that motivation to react to what the players do. So if the players stop their spies, use their impulse to figure out how do they respond? If the forest fire is driven by cons consuming forest, this it, it's a simple example, but it helps explain how the forest fire reacts to the actions of the PC. Uh, if you, if they block off one one part of the forest fire, one path of the forest fire, the impulse suggests the forest is just going to fire is just going to react by going in different directions. Uh, so the impulse just gives you some tools to figure out what would this danger do in reaction. Uh, to the, what the PCs do or don't do. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite parts of fronts uh, or concepts of fronts is what's called the grim portents. And it's not just because the name is so cool, but in part it's because the name is so cool. Good name. <laughs> uh, grim portents are what changes in your world reflect the development of the danger. So how will Will your players actually see that the world is changing in reaction to what the danger is doing? Because and it reminds you, uh, even if the the uh, connection is tenuous or symbolic, that players should see how these these dangers uh, are affecting their world and how you know the orc horde isn't just a distant danger; it's having an effect on wherever the players are, and they need to see that threat. Uh, manifest in the world around them to motivate them to do something about it. That if they don't confront the danger, it's just going to continue to grow and continue to uh, you know, have more grim uh, portents that are more and more influential in the world until the world is unrecognizable and is not one that they would choose to have. Um, so would you have grim portents that also react to the players actively trying to shut down one of these fronts? Would it be a grim portent or is that something else? 
So for I'm not quite sure I understand okay, the question. Okay, so for example, you have this uh, orc horde who's moving through the countryside, and one of the grim portents is um, the the players come across a town that's been razed and burned to the well, yeah, burned to the ground, right? Yes. Then what if the players were actively trying to put uh, put this front on its on its back feet? Would you consider having a village that um, was under attack and is now liberated from the orcs and thankful to the players? Is that a grim portent or is that something else that's related to the front? Well, I don't think it'd be a grim portent if it was a success. Right, but I mean, I'm just looking for another place to put that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Taking examples of grim portents from the uh, the, the, the 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 orc mm-hmm. horde uh, might be, you know, in, in some simple terms, you know, the the, the fires of the horde that that indicate a huge uh, army of sizes, you know, undreamt of in these lands. Uh, but it also could be the village that's been burned to the ground uh, that closely resembles the player's home village and like, Oh, well, this is just a portent of what could come to our village. If we don't fight these orcs, uh, it could be the, a, a burgeoning, uh, trade in arms, uh, or weapons or, uh, you know, contraband goods that the orcs uh, have brought have brought with them as part of their horde as an indication that the horde itself is causing a change to the society and the economy. Uh, there, you know, the, you you the, you want these to sort of ramp up from grim portents that just say, "Hey, you know, this might be a problem." To you know, l- later on in the campaign, these portents are suggesting the threat is imminent and total. That if you don't stop this cor- this this horde, they will destroy your country or your your village or whatever it is that is the setting for your campaign. Uh, so you want to kind of ramp up from maybe even symbolic portents to where there's just sort of a thematic connection to the danger, to uh, evidence in the world of what the danger is actually doing and how it's changing the world around you. Okay. So again, you know, a, a group, a, a displaced uh, uh, family from another part of the country that is that's having to flee through your city might be a grim portent, even if they fled from an area so distant that it indicates that the horde is not bearing down on your doors. But those fires of the army of the orcs that you can actually see the smoke would indicate a very a close in grim portent. Does, does that answer your question or, you know, address the question? <laughs> I'm not sure it's answerable. I, I think I'm, uh, let's see. I'm just trying to figure out how to uh, frame it in a different way. Basically, okay, grim portents, when do grim portents occur? Is this in response to the player's inaction against a front? Or is this, like, when would these be something you would employ? I think you could employ them all along. And the idea is to signal to your players that the world is changing in reaction to the mm-hmm. danger. And so it's that if, even if they act, they won't necessarily conclusively resolve that danger. Right. So they may act as a way to, you know, protect themselves from, uh, from some aspect of the danger, uh, but still, the world is changing until the danger is completely dealt with. 
uh, so you, you so if you have the the the, the uh, orc spies that you've dealt with, it's not that the players are necessarily inactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could either see the spies as important to some extent, or you might find you know they they may be carrying maps that indicate the orcs are coming this way. That could be your mm-hmm. portent. It's intended as a way to focus your attention on signaling to the players that the world is changing around them, and they need to act. Uh, even if their act won't necessarily solve the problem right now. Uh, but whether they win or lose, the world is constantly changing. But hopefully it's changing in a way that they could hypothetically address in the future if they work towards okay. it. So it motivates them to act. All right, cool. Got it. But it also avoids the problem where your 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 village from you know is constantly the same. The village of Hamlet is always the same. Everyone's in the same place. All the buildings are always the same. Nothing happens until the orc horde literally burns it to the ground. Uh, instead, you build up over time, like in good fiction, indications of the threat, shadows the threat is casting on the world around them, either thematically or literally. Uh, well, no, maybe not literal shadows. That'd be pretty close in. But uh, material implications of that danger to to the players. Uh, but even again, if it's thematic, it's still useful for signaling what, what danger mm-hmm. is out there. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, the last part of fronts I want to talk about in this segment is impending doom. And this really builds on the notion of grim portents. This is what all of those grim portents are building towards. It's a vision of what would happen if the players just went home and did nothing. The doom is how the world would change if the danger is allowed to develop to its fullest extent. So if the orc horde uh, marches from the west and conquers this this territory. Uh, that would be your impending doom is the final subjugation of this country to the orc horde. Now, is that something you communicate to the players, or is that really just here's the end game for this front? I, as a GM, know this is what's going to happen if the you know characters do I, nothing. I think it is more of a planning tool than it is something you communicate to the players, though it could be communicated to the players through some sort of dream sequence, sort of foreshadowing uh, mm-hmm. technique. But it, it it doesn't have to be. You don't have to write this all out for players, uh, but it is useful as an exercise in improvisational game preparation yep. to see what would the world look like in the absence of player actions to help you understand how to make the world evolve towards that and then evolve away from it as the players successfully push back the danger. I mean, another way to communicate that would be, Oh, the, you know, the leader of this town says, Oh, please, you have to help us. Otherwise we're going to be enslaved by these orcs. Right. A prediction of, of the consequences of failure is in some sense, just communicating impending doom. And viewing that doom experienced by like the next country over is in some sense a grim portent and in some sense just a visualization of what that doom would look like. It just happens to have happened to another country. Uh, so like I said, these are these lead into each other. Yeah, and I, I can so totally see that. So uh, between our discussion of the suns <laughs> and the uh, and uh, fronts, uh, we've already got a, a, a couple of long castings. What I'd like to do is hold off the discussion or an application of this to an invisible sun game for a future segment where I actually want to work through how to develop 
dangers, impulses, grim portents, and impending doom for a front or at least a danger uh, in season two of the Invisible Sun playtest that uh, I'm conducting now. That way we can actually show you how this process helps you develop a toolkit uh, and doesn't just script out encounter one, encounter two, all the way through encounter 50, but instead just gives you ideas and provides a tool for improvisation. So you have a bunch of stuff in your, your pocket to use um, as players begin to explore the land of uh, uh, the various uh, uh, suns uh, for our RPG. Uh, you uh, We can illustrate you know, kind of the implications of research for improvisational uh GM preparation, uh, as well as how th- this sort of fronts uh, approach works in uh, the Visible Sun RPG itself. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, I, I would like to follow up on this because fronts was one of the topics in Dungeon World that I was very interested in, but wasn't sure exactly how to you know pull the bits out and make it work for how I run games. Yeah, and again, I want to emphasize this is not necessarily an accurate reflection of the totality of fronts in Dungeon World. This is just the most fun bits I like to pull out, uh, but I think they uh, are useful as a starting point and might get people interested to read more. Uh, And even if you stop with just these fun bits, I think they can contribute a lot to improvisational game preparation. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, It really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, Tell a friend about incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.